Distant Dog Barking, Episode 5, written by D.D. McWolf. Joe reclined lazily in her underwear, cocooned in a nest of passenger clothing, airplane blankets and pillows, chewing on a pack of honey-roast in-flight peanuts and gazing out the small entrance tunnel of the cave to the trampled snow outside. She was unclear how many days had passed since her flight had crashed, but judging by the yellowing shade of black and blue bruising covering almost every inch of her slender body, she discerned it had been at least four or five days, and though she still ached from head to toe, the pain was on the decline now and she was entirely grateful nothing had been broken that she could tell. The first few days had been a blur. Not sure whether she was dead or alive, and no clue as to her whereabouts. She'd awoken the first time, probably around a dozen hours after the crash, to find herself lying on a thin bed of pine needles in some cold, dark space with not a flicker of light, other than a vaguely lighter shape she later discovered was the entrance to the cave in which she now lay. She was still clothed, and seemed to have cloth-like items piled on top, and though she couldn't tell in the dark what they were, they'd kept her warm. She had no recollection of how she got to wherever this was. Every muscle and joint had screamed in agony, and needing to pee, she had crawled a few feet, squatted to relieve herself, then crawled back to resume sleeping in what she could only assume was a makeshift bed of sorts. Some indeterminable time later, she'd awoken again, that time in daylight, and could clearly make out the cave entrance, and from it came enough ambient light to sufficiently illuminate the clothing she now lay upon and the bottles of water, snacks, wrapped sandwiches, and pre-cooked in-flight food in a pile beside her. With a raging thirst, she'd drunk and eaten as much as she could before the pain overwhelmed her, and she'd curled up again to sleep. Awaking a third time, also in daylight, she'd noticed her nest had grown slightly in depth and width, and knowing that she was not the one who'd built it, she promptly thrust a hand down under the piles of clothing to check she was still dressed and that her panties were still squarely in place. They were. So whomever was responsible for all this had not apparently violated her. Thank Christ, she'd sighed. That time she'd crawled to take a crap, a little further from the bed, and used some towelettes to clean up afterwards before crawling back to the nest, devouring a turkey sandwich and several packets of mini pretzels, and sliding off again into slumber. The fourth time she woke it seemed the nest was now about ten feet across and a foot deep, all made of clean dry clothes pulled from passengers' suitcases. It was low light outside, though she couldn't tell if that meant dawn or dusk, and through the mouth of the cave she glimpsed a shadow of a figure stand and walk off. She had almost called after it, but stopped herself, suddenly afraid. Who was this person, and why hadn't they taken her to a hospital? Why hadn't he left her for the rescue party? Why was he keeping her here? But after weighing up the circumstances, she could see she wasn't a captive, or at least there was nothing blocking the cave entrance. In fact, he'd provided for her, given her shelter, bedding, and food, she thought. 
It must be another survivor or a hermit living up here on the mountain. A kind person, hopefully, who having dragged her from the crash site has set her up in here out of the elements to heal here in this small cave and built a nest around her to keep her warm. Having inched her aching bones back to the corner she was using for her toilet, she was surprised to see her shit from the previous time was gone, scooped up and removed somewhere, and in the dirt floor of the cave a shallow hole had been hollowed out, and the dirt left to one side, obviously to be used to cover up her business after the fact. She'd been in too much pain to attempt to venture out. Besides, there was snow out there, so she knew she was high on a mountain somewhere, still snow-capped in April, and she was in no state to be trekking out to find civilization. And besides, her wilderness experience amounted to no more than backyard camping as a child, so she'd be the first to admit she'd die in a drift somewhere or get eaten by a wild animal. Though definitely weirded out and more than a little scared of these strange housing circumstances, Pain and fatigue compelled her to stay put, where it was warm and there was food, albeit mostly shitty snacks and water, lots of water, perhaps a hundred bottles stacked about, mostly still in sealed plastic packs of six, but many loose, plus a variety of dented cans of soda. The fifth time she'd awoken was the dead of night, and a full moon lit up the snow outside in a gorgeous cobalt blue hue and she could make out a well-worn trough forged in the snow by her hermit saviour in his toing and froing with salvaged supplies. Her cave wasn't large, maybe twelve feet by fifteen perhaps, and with a ceiling only about four or five feet high, so it was now pretty full with stuff, reminding her of how she'd kept a kitten cosy once by filling a cardboard box with the stuffing from an old pillow and excavating a small space deep in the center. It felt like her hermit was doing the same for her, but how did he still have access to the plane's debris? Had it not been found? How fucking remote was this place? The sixth time she woke to a vaguely nauseating bouquet of mixed perfumes, obviously from scent bottles broken in the impact and now infused throughout the even greater number of clothes, pillows and blankets which had been nested around her. And now there were pine branches assembled above her in a wigwam-type structure, braced at the ends against the walls of the cave to create a dome, then packed with clothes on top. It seemed her hermit was insulating her from the cold of the rock interior by banking the clothes up and around so there was almost no rock face visible. Just this cocoon of passengers' garments that smelled like cheap, blended colognes. Interestingly, the clothes that comprised her sleeping area were mostly wools, fleece materials, and faux fur pulled from collars or liners of coats, and so it created this luxurious womb of bad-taste plush. The outer edges of the nest, closest to the cave walls, seemed to be built up from coats, and there were even shoes stacked toward the mouth of the cave. She marveled at how this had all been built around her while she slept, and how quietly and methodically her hermit must have done this so as not to wake her. He'd even left clear paths of cave floor to her toilet area on one side of her bed, a clear path to the cave entrance, and a clear spot for food and beverages on the other side, stacked against the cool rock of the cave wall, 
presumably to prevent them from spoiling as the sandwiches were still edible, though that may have had just as much to do with the preservatives packed into the processed meats and cheeses, but anyway, Joe was impressed. The seventh time she awoke drenched in sweat and so had stripped off to her underwear and promptly guzzled several mini-waters, crawled to her dugout for a piss and crawled back, still aching all over and collapsed into her luxurious nest. She supposed all the sweating had perhaps ridded her body of some of the toxins induced by the fear and pain, and when she awoke the eighth time she was noticeably more mobile and alert, and looking out the mouth of the cave into the moonlight, she'd seen the shadow of someone, whom she again assumed was her hermit, seated and eating something, she surmised, by the faint chewing sounds and the shadow movements of his hands around his face. It was strange that there was no fire to keep him warm, or at least she couldn't smell smoke or see flames. Maybe he had his own cave somewhere else and was just keeping guard of her. It was almost romantic, she thought, watching in silence. And she was so tempted to call out a hello, but she couldn't muster the courage. Yet, probably because the dark and cold outside added to her sense of vulnerability, so she'd stayed quiet and watched covertly from her extraordinary igloo of dead people's stuff. Feeling no dread or sense of danger, she drifted off again to the sound of her hermit munching his dinner. So here she sat now, in her underwear, battered and bruised, but on the mend, and this her ninth waking in a cave nest thoughtfully pimped out by a mysteriously silent hermit on a mountaintop somewhere in the state of Washington. That's all she knew. And for all she knew, too, she was the sole survivor of a plane crash that had not yet been discovered by emergency services, or salvaged, and why was that? Or had it? And had she simply been kidnapped away from the scene by this lonesome loner who took advantage of an opportune moment to snatch himself a bride? She chuckled to herself as she pondered the absurdity of it all. What of the unrest, triggered by those New York riots, had it been contained? Or had it gotten so out of hand that rescue teams were overwhelmed and occupied elsewhere? If that was the case, then things would have to be really bad out there, and she quickly dismissed that notion as melodramatic. Been watching too much TV, she thought. She needed to find a phone amidst the wreckage. That's what she needed to do. A phone with a working battery so she could find out what the fuck was going on and get herself back to civilization. But would she be able to locate the crash site? How far had she been moved from it? And in what direction? She decided in that moment she needed to get dressed and venture outside the cave for a look-see. So kneeling up now, she began scanning for items of clothing that looked warm and appropriately sized for her skinny physique. After reeling in a few options, whoa, too large. A miniskirt? Nah. A shawl? Nah. Man's tweed blazer? Nope. Pair of ski pants? Ah, perfect. Oops, way too large. A 
Another pair in purple, not ideal, but better. A couple of oversized t-shirts and a fluffy cashmere sweater later, she felt warm enough to now look for a coat. She spotted a white girl's Gucci puffer jacket in among the garments forming the roof of her nest. Its fancy faux fur trimmed hood made it better suited for the sidewalks of Aspen, but it fit the bill for warmth, so she pulled that down from where it was pinned beneath a bough, put it on and zipped it up before crawling out of the nest and down a slight slope toward the mouth of the cave where all the shoes and boots were stacked up on either side. She found a pair of shearling-lined, ug-type walking boots that were a bit too large and floppy, but she wasn't planning on going far, at least not on this occasion, as her body was still impeded by pain, and for now, at least, she knew her nest was warm and dry. If she could find the crash site and a phone that wasn't locked, she could access GPS, get a bearing, and plan better for a hike out to the nearest town in a day or three when she was in better shape. So for now, this hussy coat and these silly bimbo boots would do, and thank Christ no one she knew would see her dressed in this shit. Cautiously poking her head out of the cave, she squinted and blinked in the strong daylight. It felt like midday, or possibly even early afternoon, judging by the angle of the sun, and there was no sight of her hermit who was possibly out salvaging more wreckage or off somewhere doing other hermit stuff. So she crawled a little further to give her room to stand up, and when she did, she was stunned by the view. The cave had its own little ledge about eight feet in diameter, but from inside you couldn't see this view due to the cave entrance being down in a slight hollow, and for the fact that it still held a frozen lump of sparkling snow. And from outside, anywhere other than on this ledge, there'd be no way to see this cave even existed. The cliff wall above was vertical, without any obvious way up. So access must be from the rock face below, Joe thought, and she couldn't immediately detect an apparent route up to this spot. Looking around, she noticed the path taken by her hermit, now worn down to the bare rock, led around to the left toward a steep cut in the granite cliff face which led down about 70 feet to another ledge below. From there, it looked like a short and less precipitous clamber down to more level ground, and the tree line was about a 100 feet down further beyond that. She gazed in awe at the vista of powder-covered mountain peaks, the vast expanse of forest and the shimmering surfaces of tiny lakes down her mountain in the distance, and took a deep breath of the crisp, clean air. And looking all around in the 270 panoramic degrees of visibility, Joe couldn't see anything that implied the wreckage of a plane. So how far was she from that, or from civilization in general? There was no way to tell. This might be British Columbia, for all she knew. Realizing she'd be needing to hydrate again at this altitude before too long, she crawled back into the cave and retrieved a couple of bottles of in-flight water, which she stuffed into the pockets of her parka, then hurriedly crawled back out, sensing an almost childlike excitement at the thought of the afternoon ahead. This moment of solitude and forced emancipation from her shitty Manhattan life, albeit at the cost of trauma and pain, was a thrill beyond words. This was one of those lottery moments when you can go AWOL from life and never resurface, 
and start anew because everyone just assumes you're dead. Or this was when you reappear on page six to fanfare and adulation and write a book of your ordeal and never have to work a day job again. Stepping around the ledge onto the top of the cut, she was pleasantly met with an almost stair-like assembly of stones, which she descended as would a child on a ladder, backwards and slowly, tightly gripping with her fingers as she carefully selected the best footholds to clamber down. At the bottom, she looked up and was pleased at how inobvious this place was, like an eagle's eyrie tucked in and away from prying eyes. Her hermit had chosen well if he'd meant to protect her, and yes, prudently, if he'd meant to do her harm. But seeing as she was now walking free, she'd give him the benefit of the doubt and credit him as her saviour. She wondered if perhaps she should have left him a thank-you note of sorts, just in case he returned and she decided not to, because walking down the mountain she might happen across a house somewhere and resultantly return to the world, but her aching joints reminded her she'd probably be back here to sleep tonight anyway, or at least she'd return to thank him at a later date, but for now she was just too psyched to explore and the path of least resistance and least pain was downward over the next ledge to the forest below. Descending across the granite scree, she was suddenly halted by a sense of uneasiness, as though she was being watched or about to walk into something unpleasant, and she stopped to listen. Then she crouched and moved in behind a boulder that sat next to her, and listened again. The silence was deafening, and her ears rang at the absence of something recognizable. Though she'd heard birds twittering before and the craw-craw of a raven overhead, all was now perfectly still. But after a minute she decided it was her imagination, and rising she proceeded onward into the tree-line. The clear blue sky lent a spectacular backdrop to the vivid green of new growth in the pine cathedral above, and she was bathed in the aroma of balsam released by the shafts of warm sunlight angling down from above, as she meandered over the perfectly soft pine-needle forest floor. Descending into a draw, she came across a small brook that trickled musically down around a knoll and toward what looked like could be a valley. Though she could have crossed the brook with a single step, Jo now followed it instead, remembering in a movie where someone had said, follow a river downstream and you'll eventually come to habitation. And sure enough, as she rounded the knoll, she heard something resembling voices talking in the distance, and she paused. Was it people? Or the babbling brook, perhaps? She couldn't make out the words, but then a whiff of wood smoke confirmed it, and she was at once excited and scared simultaneously. Should she stop here, stay hidden and listen, or make her re-entrance to the world via these campers as the sole survivor of her ill-fated flight. She needed a moment to decide and sat in a sunny spot on the forest floor to open a bottle of water. Hmm. Did she want to stay dead a while longer? She wondered. There'd only be one moment to pull a Lazarus, so was this the right one? What if these campers were only here briefly and had hiked a long way in and and on a route she couldn't navigate alone. Yes, this may be her only opportunity, so she'd better take it, she decided, finishing the water. She took a deep breath as she headed in the direction of the voices, 
rehearsing a few improvised lines in her head as the sounds and smells got louder, and then as she followed the brook around another knoll with a cluster of pines on top, she saw that it led straight to a small clearing where three men sat around a fire, with their gear strewn about in two large pitched tents. Two of the men were in the customary green uniforms of park rangers, and a third looked like a hunter in camouflage, and it was he who spotted her and stood and hushed the other two, who then turned to look, and for a moment they all froze, staring at Joe as she approached. Hi there, guys, she said to break the look of astonishment on their faces. Can you please tell me where we are, she added. The men continued to stare with mouths open, but as she got closer and they could see she was real and not an apparition, one of the rangers smiled. What the merry fuck, he exclaimed. Where the fuck did you come from? And all three men laughed. Joe stopped walking and stared at them blankly, unamused and running through her head why their reaction was like this. Perhaps this was very, very remote after all, and the sight of her was just too out of place. "'What are you doing out here, Missy?' the hunter asked. Joe decided it was okay to approach. After all, these two in green looked like trusty park rangers, and she took a few more steps in their direction. "'Would it be okay if I sit down?' she asked. But instead of inviting her to do so, they all stood and stared and continued to laugh among themselves as they shared an inside joke or some nefarious intent. My plane crashed, Joe said, hoping this statement would sober them up. Sure it did, the hunter said. Looks to me like you just stepped off the chairlift at Stevens Pass, he added, and they all chuckled as they stared her up and down, and then Joe realized how absurd she must have sounded, dressed as she was like some Euro-trash ski slut. No, truly, I was in that plane that went down a few days ago. No planes went down around here, honey, the second ranger replied. We've been the only ones on the mountain for these past four days, and... Don't honey me, Joe fired back before she could stop herself. That was rash. She needed these men, and this was not the time for holding feminist ground. I'm serious. I was on a flight from New York, and we couldn't land, and we were in this holding pattern, and then... Fuck you, missy. Do you even know what's going on in the world? The hunter fired back, allowing himself the luxury of vitriol. What do you mean? Joe asked. The first ranger continued. World's gone to shit, miss. Seattle's a war zone. Martial law, the whole nine yards. Seriously, where the fuck have you come from? Why are you talking to me like this? Joe fired back. Aren't you guys park rangers? Aren't you supposed to be all polite and helpful and friends with Smokey the Bear and all that shit? Snow White's got a mouth on her, the hunter grinned. Park rangers? The first ranger replied. Are you serious? We don't have jobs anymore. Shit's hit the fan, baby. You never see Walking Dead? What are you guys talking about? Joe asked, now thoroughly exasperated. This isn't funny. The hunter put down his coffee cup and reached into his pants pocket for a pack of cigarettes, removed one, lit it, and flicked the spent match at Joe. That's not good, she thought, as the three men smiled and shared that insider joke for a second time. Look, I'm sorry, It's it's been a brutal few days and I'm bruised from head to toe and... That I'd like to see, the hunter interrupted, but Joe ignored him and continued. Could I use a phone, possibly, please? Phones are out. No service for several days, sorry, the second ranger proffered, almost apologetically. 
Really? Joe responded, looking at their disheveled, mud-smeared uniforms and realizing there may be some truth to what they were saying. Look, I know I must look weird. You think? The hunter interrupted. But these are not my clothes. They belong to one of the other passengers who died. My clothes were destroyed and I've been sheltering up in a cave up there on that mountain, she said, pointing. And I, and I just want to go home. Can you give me something? Give me a, can you just point me in the right direction? Joe asked as the men began to spread out around her. The rangers to her side and the hunter holding her attention at her front. Panic was beginning to well up within her. Hell yeah, I can point you in my direction. The hunter jided lasciviously as he stepped in closer, grinning and exaggerating his swagger. Or point you to my direction, the first ranger said from behind, and the two men laughed raucously while the second ranger was silent. You guys... Are you guys fucking kidding me with this shit? Joe yelled, turning on the spot to make eye contact with all three, but as she turned back to the hunter, he had a knife drawn and pointed right up in her face, which caused her to gasp and pull her head back, bumping the nose of the first ranger, who was in the process of grabbing her from behind. Now angered, the ranger pinned her shoulders and pulled her arms tight behind her as though he wanted to handcuff her, and Joe promptly kicked out at the hunter's groin, but he bent over and caught her foot in his paunch. Hold her! Hold her! Hold her! Hold her! He shouted at the ranger who pulled her to the ground while the hunter grabbed up both her kicking feet and together the men flipped Joe onto her belly and it was all she could do in her shortness of breath to let out the loudest scream she could muster from deep in her soul, infused with memories of an event in her teens and rooted in a profound and justified loathing. And she screamed again as the hunter pulled down her snow pants and underwear in a wonder, and she could hear his belt unbuckle and his zip unzip, and the men laughed maniacally as the hunter spread her legs apart, knelt on her calves, and thrust his hand into her crotch to rub her. And as she screamed, she could hear the second ranger shouting, Guys! Guys, fucking stop! You can't, st you can't fucking do this shit! And mixed into the cacophony of abysmal voices, she felt the ground shudder beneath to the thrump, thrump, thrump of approaching footfalls at full gallop, vibrating the ground under her, and then a roar, like the gates of hell and a lion mixed with a freight train and the devil himself, and the men all stopped and staggered back, and one said, What the fuck? As something impacted the ranger and the hunter with him, and together they were swept off of Joe by something of great size, and Joe buried her face deep into the pine needles on the forest floor and listened. With eyes squeezed tight shut in terror, she heard the most dreadful din of crunching, ripping, and tearing to the audio of the second ranger, shouting, Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my... Over and over repeatedly until the beast, or whatever it was, turned its focus to him. And he must have just stood there fixed in terror because there was suddenly more crunching and smashing and squelching that silenced his pleas for mercy. Joe had heard once that when a bear attacks, you play dead and protect your vitals. So here, face down, arms wrapped up around her head, was where she'd stay. And for the next few seconds, she hoped that she wasn't next. 
or that her naked ass wouldn't look like meat. And she listened as all fell silent, and the sound of ragged breath inhaled and exhaled by something behemoth filled the air around her, and she lay still as stone, and a blanket of odor settled upon her. An odor of blood and shit and burning tires and festering roadkill all mixed up in some putrid, musky cocktail. That's the smell of violent death, she realized. Longing to whimper but not daring, to peek out from beneath her arms but not able, to summon a single voluntary muscle to run but paralyzed, she waited. She could feel that beast looking down at her now, studying her, and she held her breath, hoping to conceal any movement that'd signify life in her. Play dead, she said. Play dead. In her mind, over and over, listening to this diabolical breathing above her. She had no idea bears sounded like dinosaurs, but then remembered bears were bigger here on the west coast. It must be a grizzly, she decided. And maybe fooled by her feigning death, the thing all of a sudden turned and walked off, unbelievably. And those heavy footfalls gradually retreated, only slower now, one ponderous step at a time, not the galloping four-footed drumming of its barreling attack. And still she didn't move so much as a hair, but waited until the giant beast's footsteps faded off into the distance, until she could hear them no more, and then some just to be sure. As she lay face-pressed to the aromatic balsam forest floor, she was impressed that playing possum had actually worked, and realizing her life had been spared yet again for a second time in a week, she allowed herself to savor the illusion of invincibility for just a moment longer before she'd try and raise her head to the inevitable carnage that surely surrounded her. She guessed it would be bad, and something she'd never seen before, nor could unsee. And she wasn't sure she could handle it right now. Even the crash held no memories of bloody death for her because she'd been spared all that by unconsciousness, and her hermit on the mountain had removed her from any aftermath, though she guessed she'd probably not have awoken from it had he not rescued and sheltered her from the snow. By her gentleman hermit, yes, he was a gentleman, because he never intruded, nor imposed, nor attempted to take advantage while she was unconscious, and she realized now her cave was exactly where she wanted to be, and so she'd pardon herself the visual of what inevitably lay around her when she stood up now, and keep her eyes tight shut, and pull up her pants, and walk a few yards, peeking through her fingers, only down at her feet until she knew she was past any possible visuals of bloody body parts, and then she'd keep walking, without looking back, until she was around the knoll and across the brook and up the mountain and away from this fucking shit parade, because these last few days in her cave were the best she'd felt emotionally since she could remember and she would return to that sanctuary right fucking now and stay right there and fuck you world and your evil fucking rapist men cunts. I'm gonna bury you all, she uttered 
under resolute breath. Seventeen hundred yards away, Wes sat with his back against a lodgepole pine, enjoying a heaven-sent dump and gazing out across his half-acre lake to the northern slope of Stickney Mountain where a campfire had been burning for some three days now. Not being able to see the light of the flames, he assumed it was behind rolling topography somewhere, but by day he'd watched the smoke draw a thin grey line up through the pines and dissipate above the treetops. He'd kept a close eye in case anyone should wander down his way, and he was annoyed at having to creep around, but it was a good reminder to never let his guard down. He didn't make fire, so there was nothing to draw anyone in or attract attention to his area. He shifted his gaze from the plume of smoke to the western side of Index Mountain, wondering at the goings-on in the world and what might have happened back in Redmond since his departure. Just as he was cleaning up with dock leaves, a distant sound stopped him. There it was again, a woman's scream. Then a blood curdling roar that went on and on and reverberated through his guts. Then silence. He froze, thinking he might need to shit again. That was the most terrifying thing he'd ever heard. In fact, or fiction. Something of dinosauric magnitude and a hundred times louder than the faint female scream before it. And as it had ascended in tone, it had forced the hair over his entire body to stand erect, and by craning his neck, he was able to hone in on the exact spot from where it came before it ended. It was at that campfire. From his position, that was almost exactly halfway up Mount Stickney. What the fuck? he whispered. Pulling his pants up, Wes kicked a clump of pine needles over his business and strode back to his bunker tilted back the faux rock and dropped inside. He was breathing rapidly and realized he was actually panicked, a rarity for him despite the hairy situations he'd encountered throughout his military career, and he marveled at what could have shaken his roots so badly. He sat for a minute in the dim light within the bunker, light provided by a mirror hanging on the inside of the boulder hatch, reflecting light from outside in through a narrow air hole slit. Westpit was impeccably organized and neat, with several hundred canned foods, energy bars, dry carbs, and other staples shelved at one end and his armory at the other by the head of his bed for quick and ready access. The bunker was made from a cylindrical, injection-molded polythene septic tank, which Wes had bought new and unused, obviously, and had carved up into segments for easy transpo up here to his side of the mountain. At ten feet in length and five in diameter, it wasn't big enough to stand up in, but he hadn't wanted a home. He needed a badger den. When he'd located this lake, he'd scouted around its edges and found two granite boulders just inside the tree line on the forest floor. The top of the boulders were at ground level on their outside, but between them there'd been a trench five feet deep and six feet wide, and his reassembled tank had slotted right in. Once he filled in the space around the tank with soil and coated the top with a thick carpet of pine needles, it was completely invisible, and someone could walk right across the top of him without missing a beat or knowing he was there. In Wes's mind, solitude and invisibility was the only way to survive any type of purge scenario, 
and anyone attempting to simply fortify a cabin and hold their ground would ultimately fall to any organized assault. Despite having resolved not to show his face to another human being or intervene no matter the atrocity, that roar was a game-changer. Obviously, a woman may have just fallen prey to something, and that was horrible, but he absolutely needed to know what that creature was if he was going to defend himself from it. It wasn't a bear, he knew that from years in the woods, and it wasn't a mountain lion, or a coyote, or even a wolf, or anything else depicted on Google for northern Washington zoology. So most likely it was man-made and amplified somehow, but he needed to understand its true origins if he was to sleep well tonight and not give himself insomnia or agita. The uneasiness he felt over having to bug out had been a constant depressor this past week, and he knew there would be a lot of losses to lament in this new, austere reality. But hearing that hideous, otherworldly roar suddenly filled him with a dread a dread he had not previously felt. He needed to scout it out, for peace of mind. For Wes, understanding something was how he leveled it. No matter good or bad, he just needed to get his head around it. His mother had always told him that irrational people just needed to win, whereas rational people simply needed to understand, and Wes was rational to the core. Scanning his rifle rack, he instinctively reached for his AR-10, but before he touched it, he promptly pulled his hand back, doubting its efficacy. If whatever made that sound was the size of its convictions, a 7.62 millimeter round was only going to piss it off. No, he'd need his Marlin guy gun for this. Pulling it off the rack, he popped open a plastic box of Underwood penetrators and slid four rounds through the loading gate levered one into the chamber, then topped off the mag tube with a fifth round. He lowered the hammer and half-cocked it, then pulled a single-point sling from a tote-labeled gun gear and slipped it over his shoulder. He then put on his sling pack, added a wallet of five additional rounds, an energy bar, a ten-power monocular, a small first-aid kit, and lastly his life-straw water bottle, before popping out the hatch and locking it behind him. Lowering the faux boulder into place, he skulked slowly through the trees, attaching the single-point sling to the rifle's saddle ring as he went. It was a very clear, sunny afternoon, and he'd be easily spotted out in the open, so he resolved to stay within the tree line all the way up to his targeted point, which he had earmarked days before for its smoke plume visible through the trees on the mountainside. Wes walked slowly as he approached the final hundred-yard upward stretch to his targeted point through a cathedral of Douglas firs. The plume of smoke that had guided him in had gradually thinned out and vanished altogether, so he approached hyper-cautiously, one tree at a time, walking deliberately with rolling steps between each trunk, then stopping to listen and observe, taking care to avoid twigs or anything else that would make even the slightest noise. It intrigued yet unnerved him that there was not a single sign of life, no chattering squirrels or scolding birds, not even the buzz of an insect, just a stone-cold, mortal silence to where he almost thought he'd momentarily lost his hearing due to the altitude, but no, 
stretching his jaw to pop his ears made no discernible difference. There were just no sounds. But then as he was crossing from one Douglas fir trunk to another, he hit a wall of odor, unlike anything he'd ever smelled, and its acrid pungence caused him to catch his breath and gag, and he froze mid-step to suppress a cough. A fresh rush of fear dumped adrenaline straight into his bloodstream, and he moved his thumb to the hammer on his forty-five seventy, and froze. All senses on Max and ready to level any threat that might suddenly spring out from behind a tree. But still, not a sound or movement. And he tucked in behind the next trunk and waited again. And watched. Then one more tree and waited. One more and waited. The menace in the air was almost palpable and every instinct told him to get the fuck out of there. But he stepped onward. One more tree stopped, listened, another, then he heard something, a drip, drip, dripping of water like a leaky tap that keeps metronome regularity, but looking all around and into a clearing ahead he could see nothing to signify a source. But two more trees brought him up a few feet higher on the incline and suddenly the scattered, flattened remains of a camp became visible at eye level in the clearing amidst gouges and scuffs in the deep pine-needle carpet of the forest floor. Whatever happened here was bad, he thought, but he was still too far to figure exactly what had taken place or determine a victim, so he kept on, one trunk at a time, each time checking his six, three, and nine, and with twenty yards to go he paused before breaking cover to enter the clearing, bracing himself for a visual of what might be lurking to ambush him. A small brook cut through on one side of the clearing and he could hear its musical trickling now instead of the drip dripping. So, had he passed the source of the drip? Looking behind him, he scanned to his left and right again, but nothing. And then he looked up. Three trees back and two to the side of where he'd walked, a body hung, wedged into the fork of a tree about fifteen feet off the ground, it was clad in a green uniform, muddied and torn, but still recognizable as that of a park ranger. Fucking Christ, he gasped, startled. Only the lower torso and legs were visible, with the arms and shoulders on the other side of the tree. Had this body fallen from higher up, Wes wondered? Staying put against his tree, he now scanned the canopy all around, and there, as he feared... Another body on the far side of the clearing, also high up in a tree, clad in a camouflage jacket and hooked between the trunk and a branch. It was missing its head. He now walked to the tree where the park ranger hung and, rounding to the other side, saw this corpse also had been decapitated and was drip, drip, dripping blood onto a tree root below. Making his way up to the edge of the clearing and over to the second body, he rounded to the back of the tree and saw that its pants were gone, and its genitals torn off, leaving a gaping hole where the penile muscle had been stripped through the groin. Wes gazed in morbid fascination and winced at the thought. He'd seen nasty shit in the sandbox, but this was a first. 
Reviled by the sight of it, he decided he'd seen enough, and not wishing to wait around for the perpetrator to return and gift him the same atrocity, he crossed the clearing through the ruination of campground items, pieces of firearms twisted and snapped, a steel camp stove contorted like a soda can, shredded items of clothing, two tents pummeled into the ground, Unfired ammunition scattered around, and there, suddenly in front of him, sat three heads, upright in the fire pit, and West stopped short in horror. Judging by the singed hair and scorched, torn flesh around the base of their necks, the fire must have been burning when these heads were put there, and their blood had clearly extinguished the flames. Straight away from the fire pit, a blood trail led directly to the edge of the clearing, and there, impaled on the broken branch of a tree, hung a third, headless body, his left arm torn from the shoulder and hanging low in a sleeve, and its right leg twisted back, exposing a shattered femur which protruded mid-thigh through the cloth of another green ranger uniform. Wes was transfixed. No animal he knew of could inflict this meticulous degree of destruction and dismemberment nor would it demonstrate such conscious malice as to remove genitals and desecrate heads and what human possessed such unfathomable strength. West began to tremble when the noise of scratching tree bark behind him caused him to spin, drop to a knee, cock and raise his rifle all in a single second. But a tiny red squirrel leapt off the base of a hemlock on the far edge of the clearing and scampered into the decimated camp, stopped, picked up a scrap of something edible and began gnawing, oblivious and uncaring at the loss and defiling of human life around it. West stood and nodded at the squirrel's appropriate indifference. Go time, he said, and spun to leave. <laughs>